Okay, perfect. Well, let's pray and uh, we, we will get started. Let's pray. Father, oh Lord, we thank you for your marvelous grace, your mercy. Lord, we have forgotten the, the uh, truth of the lyrics of that hymn, Lord. Children of dust, feeble and frail. Father, we know that we are such, Lord, but we often forget that we are. We often think that we have the resources and the strength and everything that we need residing within us. But Lord, we know that we are utterly dependent on your grace and mercy. Every breath is a gift. And so, Father, we just thank you so much for sustaining us today, for blessing us today. Beautiful, glorious blue skies with white puffy clouds on the way to church. Father, we're not deserving of, of such grace. And yet you bless us and you, you mercifully uh, display your grace to us, Lord. And um, we're just grateful to be able to gather together as a church and to learn more about your word and to understand what your, your word declares about the, the important doctrine of justification. Bless our time. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, so we, um, we looked last week briefly um, really at some of the preliminary ideas regarding justification. And um, we have been going painstakingly slow, and I hope you don't mind that. I ran it through Pastor Chris, and he didn't seem to mind me going too slow. So I always ask him, you know, I'm very submissive, so whatever, you know, whatever he says. But uh, he said, no, you know, this is good. This is something that the whole church really needs to get, needs to understand. There's no more foundational doctrine than the doctrine of justification. Uh, justification is the soul of the gospel in one sense. I mean, Martin Luther is the one that declared, you know, that the article of justification, upon this article, the church stands or falls. Um, the idea of justification presupposes so many things, but one of the things that it presupposes is that man is lost, that man is uh, in a state of misery and sin, and because of that, he desperately needs to be put right with God. Uh, one great theologian by the name of John Murray said, we are all wrong with God. We are all wrong with God. And uh, justification is the way that God puts us right with God, reconciles us to God, puts us in a, in, a, in a relationship of amity, not enmity, with God. Because we are all born hostile to God, right? Romans chapter 8, verses uh, 7 and 9 the, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It's not even able to obey the law of God. Uh, forget about obeying the law of God. We're born hostile to it. Uh, we immediately come out of the womb speaking lies, which means from birth we're transgressing God's law. It's just amazing. So all of that, the depra we could say the depravity of man, the nature, the fallen sinful nature of man, uh, issues forth in our need to be justified in the sight of God. Um, and this is a real practical sense, but I wanted us to look real quick to Philippians. If you would, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Kind of jumping ahead a little bit because I, we're going to, Lord willing, next week we're going to dive headlong into New Testament theology dealing with the issue of justification. But I wanted to kind of set the stage as we move forward with a practical snapshot of the life of one uh, Saul of Tarsus as a person who understood his need for justification. So many people don't understand their need for justification. Oh, they, they think they need a little spirituality. They think they need to go to church, right? They think that what we're asking them is, you need to start watching Christian films instead of carnal films. You need to start listening to Christian music instead of carnal music, right? Uh, but nothing of the sort. What we're saying is, what John Murray would say, you are all wrong with God. You are at a step with God. You're at a sink. You need to be put right with God. And uh, the Apostle Paul felt his need of such. And um, Philippians chapter 3 um, is one of those principal passages of Scripture that, that shows us this. Look, let's, let's begin at chapter 3 and verse 1. He says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write, you, to, write to you the same thing again is, is no trouble for me. It is a safeguard for you. Boy, that is the, uh, that's the preacher's safe haven right there. <laughs> Sorry to have to repeat this to y'all, but it's a safeguard. That, that, you know, that, that encourages me as, as one who is constantly repeating himself. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, we know. <laughs> but it is a safe thing to be reminded of these things. He says, beware of the dogs, beware of evil workers, 
beware of the false circumcision. Now, let me just stop there as a ploy for, uh, you know, the Apostle Paul here is not mincing words. I mean, talk about politically incorrect language, <laughs> right? When did you ever go to a debate, right, with, with a Christian call, let's say a Christian Je debating a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon, the guy says, you know, I want to begin by warning you about this dog. <laughs> you know, I'd be like, huh? <laughs> That's the debate over, right? You just lost points right there. I mean, nobody really is going to accept that today in our politically correct climate. But for the Apostle Paul, what he was describing is the Judaizers. And the idea of being a dog, right, is actually a pejorative term that the Jews had designated for Gentiles, the goyim dogs, the unclean, profane, Gentile dogs. Now, isn't this remarkable? Now, outside of the gospel and under the context of a Judaizer, that person who would try to uh, distort the gospel by bringing in the necessity of works like circumcision, covenant keeping, those types of things, now they fall, ironically, under the title of a dog, which was reserved for Gentiles people outside of the covenant. So this is extremely bold of Paul to do this. He says, beware of evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Now watch verse three, for we are the true circumcision. That's a remarkable phrase. That's a theological lesson for a different day. But uh, a lot is being said there. He says, who worship in uh, the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's a critical phrase there. Confidence in the flesh. He's saying we put no confidence in the flesh. This is setting the stage for the doctrine of justification. Because really you have two options in life. You are either going to put confidence in the flesh, meaning you will look to the things that you think commend you to God as the basis of your acceptance before God, or you will admit with Paul that you are bankrupt. See, when a person becomes a Christian, you are admitting, I am bankrupt before God. I am steeped in my sin and my misery, and I have nothing to commend myself before a holy God. That's what we're saying. The way up is down, right? Bible says, humble yourself and you will be exalted. But people want to exalt themselves, and they refuse to humble themselves. But here, the Apostle Paul says, we put no confidence in the flesh. That's what true worship. That's where that's where true worship begins. And he says, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. You guys know this passage: circumcised on the eighth day, the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to as uh, why why is that important? As to a law, a Pharisee. What's so special about him claiming to be a Pharisee? Anyone? It's high ranking. High ranking. Were they considered like the conservative part? Conservative. Of the Jewish people. They kept they kept the law perfectly. Kept the law perfectly, right? Yeah. So to be a Pharisee, unlike other sects like Sadducees, which which mean it, it meant that you you were you belonged to a school of thought that was the strictest in observing God's law. You were the most legalistic, in other words. You every jot and tittle, right? What the Pharisees tell them, you know, we tithe right down to the very spices in our home. <laughs> right? So he says here, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. This is how zealous was, how zealous Paul was. He was a terrorist, an early jihadist. Right? I mean, what are we seeing today with ISIS? Beheadings, putting Christians to death. Well, Paul would have no problem with that when he was Saul. Saul of Tarsus had no problem going to Judea, all throughout the regions of Judea, capturing and, and taking uh, and arresting Christians and having them put to death. No problem. That's how zealous he was for his traditions. Isn't that amazing? Paul had a lot in common with a jihadist. He could really relate to a terrorist, right? He could have a good conversation at Starbucks with uh, Al-Qaeda or something. <laughs> Say, I know where you're coming from. A persecutor of the church as to, the, as to righteousness which is in the law found blameless. Matter of fact, Paul even says in the book of Acts, he talks about the fact that, look, as far as my conscience is concerned, I don't know of anything that I've done wrong. <laughs> I mean, wow. I mean, this guy was radically devoted to walking before his God 
But that doesn't mean that he didn't know that he, he, he thought he was sinless. Of course not. His testimony in 1 Timothy chapter, I think it's chapter 1, verse 18, he goes into his testimony where he, he admits that he, was, that he was a violent aggressor, that uh, many other things. He was, a, you know, he was ignorant, which is, is not a virtue. It's actually a bad thing. It's not a good thing. Verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. For more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. So everything that he just listed above, beginning in verse 5, is rubbish. It means None of that, look at the word that he uses in verse 8, count them. He could not reckon those things for any righteousness whatsoever. By the way, um, I was just recently listening to a lecture by G.K. Beale, and boy, he encouraged me. You know, um, Chris knows this, but I've been debating going to the ESV. Because the ESV is, oh, this might sound really bad. It's kind of more the trendy, you know, sort of, you know, but it's still literal, so my conscience is okay with it. Um, I've, been, I've been thinking about the ESV because it's so accessible and there's so many kinds of ESV Bibles you can buy. So ESV Bible all the way, go for it. K-Dub, you're cool, man. I see that study Bible. You're all right, man. You're okay, bro. But G.K. Beale said in one of his lectures, really encouraged me because I've been really, you know, contemplating this would be a big change for me because all my sermons are NASB and anyway. G.K. Beale said this, if you're not going to learn Greek or Hebrew, he said, if you're not going to learn Greek or Hebrew, this is a seminary class, he says, get yourself a new American Standard Bible. He says, look, they're not paying me to do this. I'm just telling you that when you study the Bible at a critical level, you want as many of the words on the page to be original, to be in the Hebrew and in the Greek. And many other versions of the Bible, they're just not as reliable that way. I just know the, the NASB is, I can bank on it when it uses a certain theological phrase that that is actually in the Greek text. I can almost bank on it, right? So anyway, just a little, did I convince anybody in here? <laughs> Verse 9 is really where justification takes off here. He says, that I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, or, and that would speak to the instrumentality of faith versus works. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death in order that I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. You see, all of this is leading to eschatology for Paul. What is soteriology about? Well, the Bible begins eschatologically. The Bible opens up with the doctrine of eschatology. It doesn't open up with the doctrine of soteriology. It opens up with a view towards the coming new creation. That's what the whole Bible begins. That's a thrust. I would say that really is kind of like the thread that you can weave throughout the whole scripture is that everything is moving towards the kingdom of God, the new creation, right? The new heavens, the new earth, et cetera, et cetera. And so here, for Paul to say that I might attain to the resurrection of the dead, in other words, highest priority, that I would be raised with him. Because remember what it says about Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, I think it's like verse 56 or something. It says, or maybe not, I think it's maybe in the 40s, where it says that Jesus, through his resurrection, he became a life-giving spirit. Isn't that amazing? Jesus became a life-giving spirit. The first man, Adam, right, became a breathing soul, right? God fashioned him, created him a living soul. But Jesus, through his resurrection, became a life-giving spirit. Why is that important? That is important because in biblical eschatology, to attain to the resurrection is to reach the ideal form of existence. It is to enter into the sphere of spirit. You see, the Bible says that we will become, we will be, we will have a spiritual body one day. Amazing. Which means we will enter into that 
sphere, that ideal sphere of spiritual existence par excellence. Man, you think you know the spirit now. Wait till you go to heaven, <laughs> right? You are going to be, I don't even know what the words that Paul says. There's no words to explain it. You're going to reach the highest state of existence, right? People are trying to reach the highest state of existence here. John Piper says you should make life on this earth like hell so that you can long for heaven. But we're trying to find our heaven now. Everybody is striving to try to realize a spiritual state, an ideal spiritual life now, which really is reserved for us then through the resurrection. But notice this all happens through not having your own righteousness derived from the law, that is law-keeping. So for the Apostle Paul, what I'm suggesting to you is that he had a crisis, a religious crisis in his life where Paul found himself asking himself, how do I make myself right with God? I've done all these things. Fundamentalists? Where are my fundamentalist people? Where's Jonathan and the man? Oh, my man over here, okay. You know, you do everything they tell you to do. You dress the way they tell you to dress. You act the way they tell you to act. You sing the way they tell you to sing. You do the church the way they tell you to church. You stand, you sit, you kneel, you know, whatever. And still, you lack the moral rights to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Because all of those things that you're doing, that is not what makes you righteous in the sight of God. Isn't it amazing? Paul, you could say Paul was a good little church boy before he got saved. How many people are in that place today? Good little church girl, good little church boy, doing everything mommy and daddy want me to do. And yet, all of the things that you're doing, none of those things are producing the righteousness that you need to attain to the resurrection. That only comes by justification, by faith alone. It is not of my own derived of the law, he says, but it's through faith in Christ. It is on the basis of the merits of Christ that, that, that his righteousness consists. It comes from God. Notice what he says. It's a gift of God. It's given by God. It is bestowed on you by God. Why? Because justification is something that takes place in the tribunal of God. Not in the courtroom of what man sees, but in the tribunal of God. That is where justification takes place. That is where the pronouncement is made, not guilty. And that is where you are positively made righteous in the sight of God. Exactly what Paul's desperately longing for his whole life. I need to be righteous before God. And God says, this is a gift of mine. It is through faith in Jesus Christ, and it is not of your own works. That's the way that it works. So let's look here at my nifty little chart, okay? Because we're still in justification. Now see it there in the order of salvation. That's what we've been going through. The order salutis is um, the, uh, the order of saving aspects in our life all the way going back to foreknowledge, predestination, and election, and then into time and space, I guess we could say, with effectual calling, regeneration, repentance and faith, which is really conversion, repentance and faith. And then upon faith, justification comes, resulting in adoption. And then uh, we'll go from there. Now, let's go to the Old Testament. The Old Testament, I want to stress to us Again, the forensic aspect of justification. When I say forensic, what do I mean? I mean two things. So what do I mean by forensic? Like the courtroom analogies. Or... Courtroom. What does court, the court speak of? Legal. That which is legal, right? So I'm speaking of justification, or I would say the Bible teaches justification along a legal or forensic term and not, okay, not a moral aspect of justification, which means that what the Old Testament is going to show us here is that what the idea of being justified, of justifying, of justification, all the 
uh, in Hebrew, which is zadik, all the zadik word groups, what they speak of primarily has to do with a legal status, a legal status, not an inward moral transformation and change. Does it result in that justification? Of course it does. But that is, that is speaking of the sphere of sanctification. So we could say, just getting ahead a little bit because I really want to develop, I knew I grabbed the wrong one. We don't want to confuse these two, but we don't want to, um, we don't want to lose the logic of it either. So we go from justification, right? Produces sanctification. And we could even say it results in sanctification. So it's not that these two have nothing to do with one another, but we cannot intermingle them. This is the error of Rome, the Catholic Church. Rome identifies that which belongs to justification to sanctification. So that what's going on in your salvation or in, in, in your conversion primarily has to do with God making you morally righteous within. We can say that justification is something that, that's like Todd Friel, tall. It's <laughs> something that happens to you, but it is not something it is not something that happens, oh boy, let's say this is the, the, the being of man, okay? It's not something that happens in you. I guess that's one way I can say it. It's something that happens to you, but it's not something that's happening in you. Yes, justification is an experience that comes home to the individual. You do experience justification, but it is not something that changes you from within. Any questions about that? Because this is critical. I mean, this is really the essence of the doctrine of justification by faith alone and how it differs from sanctification. Think of it this way, folks. Justification is a once-for-all act. We're going to go through these points little by little, but <clears throat> point by point, slowly. Justification is a one-time event. It is, it is instant. It is once for all. It is not repeated. You don't be justified over and over and over again, right? You're not even progressively justified. You're getting more and more and more and more and more justified. That, those ideas belong to sanctification. Sanctification is a process. It is progressive. It is something that happens over a, a period of time. Yes, sir? That second man you're talking about, that would... That's a man. That's my man. Yeah. <laughs> supposed to be a man. That would, that would more um, identify with doctrine of regeneration. Well, two different things, right? So regeneration precedes justification. Okay. Right? So going back to our little chart here. Okay. So regeneration happens prior to repentance and faith. And... As a result of repentance and faith, a person is justified. Upon justification, you are adopted into the family of God. This is just the historic reformed interpretation of the order salutis. So regeneration precedes justification, which is a doctrine that we went over. Remember, guys, we went over this pretty, pretty emphatically, pretty at length. I'll just show you real quick, Landon, because you raise it. First John... Go to 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, right? Some of you already knew I was going here. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, okay? I think puts the issue of, uh, of regeneration preceding faith, therefore preceding justification, puts it beyond dispute. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, whoever believes, watch this, whoever believes, that's faith and repentance, that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. Now, what could he possibly mean when he says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God? Well, if you just read that verse and you didn't know the grammar of the Greek, you might be tempted to think what he's saying is there, by believing, it results in being born of God, right? If you believe, then the result is you will be born again. 
right? Cannot mean that. It cannot mean that. Chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. It's always good to have your theology and some of the, especially the exegetical points that you make, come from the same author. It's just a strength, exegetical strength. It's coming from the same uh, theologian. I know it's all God's word, but anyway, it's good. It comes from John. John himself is arguing this. Look at verse 29. Verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Why do I correlate the two? Because the Greek word there, born of him or born of God, is the exact same Greek word, and it's in the exact same Greek tense, which is a perfect tense, which literally, if you have an ESV, who has an ESV? Well, I know you have an ESV. Are you there? Yeah. K-Dub, can you read that verse? If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Has been born of him. See, the ESV is trying to draw out the implications of that perfect tense as a past tense reality that has ongoing results into the present. So what is it saying? Because you know, Landon, right, that you could not say of this text here, everyone who practices righteousness, it results in being born of God, right? <laughs> because then you would have something like a works-based salvation, practice enough righteousness, you get born again. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is it's evidence that you have been born again. So the same thing with chapter 5, verse 1. If you, if you believe on the Lord Jesus, it is evidence that you have been born of God. Okay? That's so important because a lot of people mix that up. They think when Jesus said in John 3, 3, you, you, must, you, know, you must be born again that that means salvation or justification, right? But he is not even putting a demand on Nicodemus. He's not giving him an imperative. This is something you need to do, so come on, do it. Jesus is stating a fact of reality. An individual doesn't have the capacity to see the kingdom of God unless he experiences the new birth. Yeah. So, yes, sir? So that justification is not a promise It is, it, it's imputed to you at that moment. By faith. Right. But it's not a promise, and then once you pass away, then it's imputed to you oh. as a promise. No, no, no. It is a promise, I guess. I mean, present justification is a process of future glorification, mm -hmm. but present justification is, uh, is something that is imputed to you upon faith. It's yours. It's yours. Well, it's not yours. Well, it's yours now, <laughs> right? It wasn't yours. Exactly what Paul says, right? Not a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but a righteousness that comes from God, a righteousness that is by faith in Jesus Christ. That is the righteousness that we want, and it promises us future glorification. But look at this beautiful, uh, these beautiful texts here. These are glorious. Um, the Old Testament theology of justification. Um, once again, I, just, I haven't even touched my notes yet, but here we go. Uh, the need of our justification captured in Psalm 143, verse 2, where the psalmist declares to the Lord, Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no man living is righteous. Right? So that is our desperate need for justification. But look at the provision. Psalm 130, verse 4. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. See, God didn't leave us in our sin and our misery, but he provided us a way of escape. He provided us a mediator, right, on the basis of the pact of redemption, on the basis of the covenant of redemption, that is, the covenant between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Remember, we talked about this before. This, this intra-Trinitarian pact, the members of the Trinity, they made this covenant together to redeem man, where each member of the Trinity played an essential part in that covenant to fulfill certain obligations that they, both, that they all agreed upon. And upon fulfilling those things, they each were uh, given a certain reward. Jesus, glorification, vindication, exaltation with his people, 
We saw that out of Isaiah 53, verses 11 and 12. But let's go on here. Um, there we go. Okay, let's turn to Exodus chapter 23, or you can just read it there if uh, you don't want to turn there. But Exodus uh, 23, verses 6 through 7, fascinating text. Again, what are we pointing out? The forensic justification in the Old Testament because forensic justification in the New Testament is based on the Old Testament. That's why it's so important. Romans chapter 4 doesn't come from Paul, right? Uh, yes, he wrote it, but no, those are not uh, thoughts that he's inventing. Right? This is a theology found throughout the word of God. So Exodus 23 verse 6 says, you shall not pervert the justice due to your needy brother in his dispute. Verse 7, keep, keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent or the righteous for I will not acquit the guilty. And there the word to acquit, chesedik in Hebrew means to justify, to justify. God is saying, I will not justify the guilty. God is not saying there that he's going, that, that what he doesn't want to do, he doesn't want to take a guilty person and make them morally righteous. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I don't want to change their status from guilty to non-guilty. That's what he's saying. See, that's what happens at justification. Your status is changed. You go from guilty to non-guilty. God acquits you of your guilt. But he doesn't, but justification does not mean that God makes you morally a righteous person. Okay, that's the work of sanctification. Yes, justification introduces it or, inter, or, or brings us to the point where God begins to sanctify us. But justification has to do with God legally dismissing our case. Next one, Deuteronomy 25, verse 1. This is, um, this is also interesting because here we have what's known in, uh, uh, this is kind of like a, a way that the Hebrews would write. It's called antithetical parallelism. So that you understand the truth, what he's saying. They bring in parallel together two ant antithetical things, opposites. So look at, verse, look at this verse. He says, if there is a dispute between men, they go to court and the judges decide their case and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. So there we understand the concept of forensic justification is the same. The justification in view is purely legal and not ontological or moral. What do I mean by ontological? Meaning it doesn't affect the being of man, the essence of man in a moral sense. You do not become a moral person upon justification. It's as simple as this. You go to court and a person has been convicted by, uh, or accused of a crime, and the judge brings him into, uh, brings him into his, his courtroom, and he says, you are guilty of these crimes, X, Y, and Z. When the judge pronounces the condemnation, did he make, did he make the criminal bad? Of course not. He doesn't make him bad. He is affirming a status. This is a legal pronouncement. So in the same way, when a judge says, not guilty, he is not making the person righteous, right? He is declaring that he is innocent, that he is just. Any questions, comments? Yes, sir? Is there a differentiation between the Old Testament justification in the New Testament in that because in the New Testament you receive the Holy Spirit. So you're not morally made right, but I guess you have the capacity to now obey with the power yes. of the Holy Spirit. And how is that weighed in difference? Well, <clears throat> well, actually, that brings up a good question. You know, what we would say is that salvation in the old and the new are the same. They are the same, essentially the same. You are justified by grace through faith in Christ alone to the glory of God alone, and leave everything else alone. <laughs> I, read the, I, read same, I read that same concept in Habakkuk. Uh-huh. The just shall live by faith? Yeah. That's right, Habakkuk 2.4. That's exactly what he's saying. 
So yes, we believe that salvation is essentially the same in the Old and in the New. So we believe that in the Old Testament, people were indwelt by the Spirit. Oh, in the Old Testament they were as well? Yes, sir. Yeah, they had the Spirit of God within them. Even the New Testament says that. First Peter chapter 1, verse, uh, I think it's verse uh, 11, talks about the Spirit of Christ in them, speaking of the prophets. So, what was that again, the verse? I think it's First Peter chapter 1, verse 10, or no, no, verse 11. So, <clears throat> so yeah, does that kind of clear yeah, it up for I, you? For whatever reason, I always thought that the prophets had the Spirit, but the regular layman didn't, and it was kind of a, I didn't realize it transcended that to all. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's amazing, but that, so one thing, maybe there's a point of hermeneutics. One thing that we can expect is to have New Testament language retroactively found in the Old Testament. Meaning we shouldn't expect, for example, um, in the primeval history of the, of the Bible, let's say all the way up to Noah, okay? That's kind of like called the primeval history, prior to the patriarchs, after creation, right? So we don't expect to find Romans chapter four, chapter five language in that passage of scripture where it says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We don't expect to find the author of, Gen- of Genesis, Moses, back in the primeval history of, of, of the people of God using language like justification to talk about what happened with Noah. But that is what happened with Noah. He was justified by faith. It was the grace of God that saved him but you're not going to find that language that early on in the Bible. So the Bible explains to you, it fleshes out, it gives a fuller disclosure of the nature of salvation even in the Old Testament. Right? Jesus came and he told Nicodemus about regeneration. So, there's, so this is what we could say. That there is discontinuity of language, but continuity of reality. Right? Does that make sense? There is discontinuity of certain languages, of vocabulary, but there's continuity of reality. So Jesus telling Nicodemus, you know, ye must be born again. And then he says, Nicodemus, aren't you the teacher of Israel? Don't you know this stuff? Right? He should have known the doctrine of regeneration. But can you look in the Old Testament and find me a verse that says, you must be born again. No, you can't. But there is other language in the Old Testament that speaks of the same reality. Can anybody think of it? Anybody think of the Old Testament speaking about being born again? Ezekiel? It's a big book. You guys better narrow it down. <laughs> so I have, what, 47 chapters or something? Where in Ezekiel? The Valley of the Dry Bones, maybe that's a pictorial, that's a typology, a picture of regeneration. But there is, what's that, John? It's 36, You're usually right, brother. I don't doubt you. I think it's 30, 30 I want to say 3725. I don't know. That's, what, that's my guess. But what, what about anything else? Anything else in the Old Testament that speaks to regeneration? Without using the word born again. Did you say the story of Noah? I mean, destroying the world and leaving the eight, you know. And from that point, you know, Noah going out and repopulating. Right. I don't know. Certainly a picture, according to Peter, it's definitely a picture of being in Christ. For sure. Yes, sir? I don't know which, which verses it is exactly, but it's where God says, I will wash you. I will do this to you. I will make you clean. Um, Yeah, I think that's Jeremiah 31, or or actually, yeah, 31-31, which is speaking about the new covenant, Mm -hmm. kind of a salvation in a comprehensive sense. But yeah, that is talking about regeneration, being washed. Chris? You have all the places where it talks about circumcised with heart. Ah, that's exactly what I was looking for, (laughs) right? All the way back to the, all the way back to the Pentateuch. All the way back to the five books of Moses, we already have language of circumcision of the heart. Right? 
Moses tells the people, you know, you stiff-necked people, circumcise your hearts, right? I can think of another part of the Bible, and that's in Ruth, when she forsook her, forsook her gods. So maybe as a picture of conversion? Yeah. Yes, sir. That's right. So, getting back to what I was saying, in the Old Testament, you can expect sort of a, of a distinction or a difference in vocabulary, but there is a, an organic continuity of the reality. It is the same. I mean, how obvious is this? Who is, who is the prime example of the doctrine that we're studying right now? Justification. According to Paul, who is the prime example? Abraham. <laughs> so whatever happened with Abraham, I hope it happens to us, right? Because that's how you get saved. Right? That's what he's saying. So to show you that the, the salvation in the old is the same as the salvation in the new, just look at Abraham. He was justified. Dikai'a'o. He was, made, he was declared righteous uh, in the sight of God by his faith. And so in the same way that you and I are justified, so was uh, Abraham. And why was he justified? Who is Abraham after all? What's so special about Abraham? Anything? Is there anything special about Abraham prior to him being justified? He was a heathen. I mean, he washed the <laughs> That's right, brother. He was a heathen. And oh, didn't I look for this verse last time and I couldn't find it? Yeah. Where was that? Is it Joshua? Joshua 24, I think, where Joshua retells the story of redemption. He yeah, says, right. Abraham, right? God called him out of paganism, right? Where Abraham's fathers worshipped foreign gods. So Abraham, being a total pagan, was going headlong against God. And how did God turn this pagan's heart? How did he do it? Through justification? No, no, no. Prior to justification, how did God turn Abraham's pagan heart? Through regeneration. Say it, but declare it, brother. Come on. <laughs> That's something you can declare. <laughs> Claim it. <laughs> That's right. It was through regeneration. God gave Abraham a heart of flesh. He took out his heart of stone, that pagan that wanted to bow down to, to idols. He gave him a new heart. Yes, sir? If I'm trying to explain, I guess, being born again from John chapter 3, could I explain it as you must be regenerated in order to see the kingdom of God? Would that be synonymous, I guess? Absolutely. Right? Yeah, okay. Absolutely. You may need to explain to a person what is regenerated. You know what I mean? What does that mean exactly? Um, but again, maybe some other text here. Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike, are an abomination to the Lord. Interesting, isn't it? He uses the Greek word to'eva, which means that which is abhorrent. It's the same word that's used of homosexuality uh, throughout the Levitical code. Homosexuality, uh, all these... You know, vile, sinful things are toeva. They are abomination to God and abhorrence to God. Our world, with all of its moral compromise, that's spinning out of control, morally speaking. We're on a we're on the slippery slope to who knows where. Well, we know where, but this culture is sliding down the slippery slope of moral decay, moral collapse, and we flirt around with, you know, what you know. Uh, modern concepts of sexuality and the sexual revolution and what's going on with homosexuality and just tidal wave of compromise that is happening even in the so-called church when God sits there and says Toeva, like it or not I could care less what you think you know it's like God I could care less what people say on CNN or Fox News Toeva, abominable that's how holy God is we don't, don't even understand. This is the holy God of Israel. And when God says, I regard it disgusting, right? 
It doesn't matter how much machinations and doesn't matter how many ways we try to twist the language and, and say that we've advanced and we're modern now. No, no, no. The ancient holy God of Israel says to Eva, period. Right? Doesn't change it. Okay. Any questions about that? I know that's a hot button issue. I don't mind talking about it because I talk about it all the time on Red Grace because it's happening everywhere and... You know, the compromise is everywhere, and just seems like people are capitulating everywhere. I mean, we just, I just had a guy, okay, one of my favorite publishing companies is Focus, Focus Publishing. Did you guys listen to the dividing line uh, last couple weeks or whatever? He's talking about Adrian, I think Warnock. his name is Warnock, Adrian Warnock, who typically is going to be writing pretty solid stuff. I mean, he wrote an article talking about why we need to celebrate um, LGBT tolerance day or something like that. It's just like, what? You know, like, oh, you know, I thought this was a publisher I could trust, you know. But anyway, I'm not saying, you know, he's trying to make a case for a certain argument, but it doesn't work, you know. That's all just propaganda. It's a propaganda machine. That's all that is. Don't get me started on that because then, you know, it's like a whole different lesson here. Um, Isaiah 5.23, let me, let me, let me write this, and then look at the Net Bible. Who, who justify the wicked for a bribe, who take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. And the Net Bible says, they, excuse me, they pronounce the guilty innocent. This idea, see, because the, the Net Bible there, they're trying to draw out the nature of this justification as being a pronouncement, right? A declaration of righteousness or the lack thereof. Okay. What about Isaiah 53? Turn to Isaiah 53, if you would, with me. Isaiah 53, we'll end it there, because we're almost out of time. Isaiah 53 is a masterpiece in terms of soteriology, um, Christology, all these things. All sorts of, look at the element of substitution in Isaiah, verse 4, right? Uh, he bore our griefs, right? Our sorrows he carried, right? This idea of substitution. We have a substitute. Verse 6, like sheep we've gone astray. Each one of us we've turned our own way. Watch this. The Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was our sus substitute. He stood in our stead, right? Verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, same exact thing. But then look at verses 11 and 12. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. The many is referring to the elect. And he says, as he will bear their iniquities. He will bear whose iniquities? Their iniquities. Verse 12. Therefore, I will allot a portion with the great. I will divide the booty with the strong because he poured himself out to death. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many, and he interceded for the transgressors. And so there, the Old Testament, peeking ahead, looking ahead, already talking about this idea of a substitution that must take place in order for us to be justified. And you know that it's forensic because it's the removal of our guilt, the removal of our iniquities. That's what's going on with with justification, even in the Old Testament. One last verse, and this is the crux interpretum. <laughs> the crux interpretum. Genesis 15, 6. This is speaking of Father Abraham. He believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. This is a huge one in terms of justification. Why? Because it is upon Genesis 15, 6 that Paul builds his his doctrine of justification in Romans, Romans chapter 4. So uh, turn to Romans chapter 4 really quickly. We have a couple more minutes. Just enough time for me to get in trouble with the timekeeper. <laughs> Romans chapter 4. Look at everything that's implied in Paul's use and his interpretation of Romans, excuse me, Genesis 15, 6. In Romans chapter 4, look at what's implied. What's implied there in the way that Paul interpreted it is that what happened at Genesis 15, 6 is imputation. 
There was imputation that took place. Romans 4, 8. Because he connects it to Psalm 32, where he says, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And we know that uh, that means that God is not going to reckon your sin to you, impute your sin to you. How? By being justified. Justification is also by faith alone. Verse 9. Verse 9. Is the blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For, we say, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. You see that? So there is the, not only the instrumentality of faith, but what I would go on to say is faith alone is what this is talking about. Faith apart from works. So, so faith alone and then works are excluded. Verse 4 Justification is not by works. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, i.e., referring to the grace of God, he says, but as what is due. So in other words, if it is by works, then, then it's like you're paying somebody's wages. It's what you owe him. But Abraham was not saved. He was not justified because it was something God owed him. It was something God did as a favor by grace, sovereign grace. And therefore, justification results in the doctrine of soli dio gloria, right? Look at verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God, right? So what's Paul saying there? If it was by works, then Abraham could stand up and say, ha, ah, see, see, see what I did? <laughs> see what a good boy I am, right? But then he says, but not before God. So what he's saying there is we know that the idea of before God means that no flesh is able to boast in that scenario. When you're standing in the presence of God, when you are before God, all boasting is eliminated. So we know it can't meet that because justification is for the glory of God alone. Any last questions or comments? Nothing? And you guys are easy. All right, I'm just going to pray now. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I just wish this class could go on for two more hours. I don't know if your people would like that, but it's just that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is so glorious. It is our gospel. And so, Lord, help us to understand it, to apprehend it rightly. And as we move towards the New Testament, help us to know the dynamics of it. Bless our time in worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.